Baruch Achi Yehuda. Bless you, my brother. Judah, Baruch Achi Ephraim. Bless you, my brother. Ephraim, Shema Israel. Hear and do, O house of Israel. Uh, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, you're more than welcome uh, to come and join us uh, if you're led and be a part of the community gathering and, uh, and uh, join us in uh, song and whatnot beforehand. And then we also uh, have Q&A and things following the message. So uh, if you're led, then uh, just as easy as going to rivershabbat.com, the website, and just scroll down, click subscribe to the newsletter. And just put an email, first and last name, and that will put you onto the community uh, list. And every week we send out the newsletter, which has the link to the uh, weekly gathering. And, uh, and you'll be able to use that link in the newsletter to uh, click on it and come join us. So you're very welcome. Okay, the 12 tribes, meet the family. Who here has seen... Part one, two, and three. Hands up. Okay. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Most of you. Um, if you haven't, um, go and have a look. Those are, you know, just some of the foundational parts and some of the things that we're looking at this, uh, this series. We're not looking at it maybe in some of the traditional ways. We're more looking at it from the perspective of um, the heart journey, the strengths, the weaknesses, the why, who is the house, all these sorts of things to sort of get an understanding of uh, our uh, family tree um, spiritually. There will be a physical reality to that, but we're not going to get caught up in the genealogies. However, we are going to look at some of those uh, genealogies as they were recorded in Scripture, but not for the sake of being consumed by that, but for the sake of just understanding what is the character uh, and some of the attributes and uh, some of the things that are mentioned about understanding, you know, this father's house of Israel, and he has 12 tribes in it. 12, 12 children that would represent this diversity uh, and this incredible diversity in his house. And our father is not into just having, uh, uh, you know, um, one child with only one set of dimensions and qualities and skills and these sorts of things. And so, um, we are an incredible house that has now been scattered across the world and uh, we're in exciting times and he's starting to bring back an awareness and understanding us to come into a place of teshuva uh, or metanoia in the Greek or repentance in the English. And so we are learning, uh, as the scriptures had promised in the great prophet Daniel, that the understanding of uh, his righteousness and certain things would become more and more known and brought to the forefront just before the coming uh, of uh, the second coming of Messiah and the fulfillment of the fall appointed times. So we are in exciting times indeed. And, um, and we're seeing lots of strange things starting to emerge around the world right now. Who thinks the world's getting a little weird? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not just a teaching anymore, is it? It's not just a warning anymore. It's not just a, you know, yeah, we, we are uh, seeing a lot of, um, we're seeing a lot of stuff starting to unfold as Messiah gets closer and closer. And so the instructions at that time was for us to look up our redemption draweth nigh. 
to help each other finish this race and be back into repentance. And so the understanding or the reasons why to do these types of series is that we will get this and understand this at the heart level. Because if we don't, then none of it means anything. Because as I've said many times before, nobody's knowledge is going to impress Elohim. Okay, or whatever we think we have. Um, he's given us an understanding and his rock has, you know, all these thousands of years later, uh, continues to uh, break through the hostile jamming of the adversary. And um, we, uh, as a house of Israel, are the recipient of getting this understanding as the rock breaks through um, before the coming of our king. So um, we're not to worry about the mark of the beast, we are to be consumed with the seal of Elohim. And, uh, and so we want to keep our focus on where it matters. And um, I'm always reminding people at this time that, uh, that um, the adversary is not your judge. Elohim is. So we might want to keep our focus on who we're actually accountable to not who's just going to cause some trouble before his coming. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we're in the right place. Amen? Right? Yep, let's keep our eyes fixed on him, uh, regardless of the schemes of the adversary. Okay, I'm just going to do a quote here um, from Benjamin Harrison. He was the 23rd president of the United States uh, from 89 to, uh, to 1889 to 1893. And he says, great lives never go out, they go on. And I love that quote in the sense of uh, some of the things and the characteristics we have seen right through uh, the house of Israel, what we see sort of, you know, marked uh, throughout scripture. And indeed, I believe right up to this present age and all those who have gone before us that there were those people who had a zeal for his house, for his way, for his truth. And that's what we want to be as a community. We want to be a community that has that passion. Um, but we have spoken in the series that sometimes, does everyone know, our greatest strengths can be our greatest weakness. And so we see this in the house of Israel with its passion and its zeal. Um, it is unquestionable that this is the marker of the people in the house of Israel. They are passionate and have a zeal for his truth and their God. Um, but sometimes, and again, the adversaries in there mixing things up, and this zeal is, is not always according to his truth. And so we've, over thousands of years, and indeed as we see the house of Israel and why it got uh, the, the condition broken, it was essentially in modern language divorced, from the house of Israel and the 10 tribes were scattered out and then Yehuda carried on to keep the scepter until Messiah had come. And we see all of these things where something creeps in, idolatry, spiritual adultery, these things, we start entertaining things that we shouldn't. And this is done effectively through religious dogma and Talmud, the precepts and the teachings of men. And so we do this, we get caught up in this and sometimes we just need to go back and revisit his word. We need to be in the spirit. We need to be in discipleship. We need to be in a place where we can work out matters of what we think we know um, and how we've been taught. Over the years, I've found personally that it has been my knowledge that has been one of the biggest barriers and blockers to the Ruach. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of my knowledge over the years and growing and learning and trying to understand the faith, you pick up a lot of stuff. 
And that stuff tends to make noise in your head and you scream because all of a sudden somebody comes along and a donkey says something and it's like, no, that's not how I understand it. And I, and you know, and it's in those moments where we got to go, okay, it may not be how you understand it. Um, and you only get so much mileage out of shooting a messenger. The best thing we can do is to go back and to test whether these things be so and to do it with others, not to be islands unto ourselves. This is a very dangerous path at this point. And so I'm warning many people at this time, uh, do not be an island unto yourself right now. And, and also a lot of the leaders that um, are islands unto themselves, and they are also subject to all of this. Remember, the house of Israel over the years had a much better understanding and obedience to the faith than any of us today. And so if they can be struck by religious dogma and Talmud, um, and, and we can see a whole house broken up, and we can see a whole lineage and generations of a family experiences. Don't think 2,000 years later here, especially in the West, that we haven't picked up some weirdness um, that maybe shouldn't be in the house. And so we're just going through that week of unleavened bread and trying to get some of the spiritual leaven out of the house. Uh, and also we're connected to this Feast of Weeks as we head for Shavuot. And we want to continue to just kind of go, okay, Father, you know, how are we supposed to see this in, in your uh, spirit and truth? Um, but as a result of all of this, again, the words of Messiah, the commandments, these things are set aside in place of these other things. So yes, we want to have zeal, but we want to do this, well, affectionately and passionately speaking truth and love. And we point out, uh, uh, we point these things out and then we can help avoid what is our greatest strength becoming our greatest weakness. Okay, so the greatest weakness, this will materialize and we'll, you know, we see right throughout scriptures, idolatry, divination, traditions, all of these things, and they all are based on these fiery darts of, of the adversary, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And essentially this will lead us to a lack of fear of Yah. We will adopt our labels, our denominations, our principles, all of these things that we have seen transpire in, in the house of Israel, uh, both on the Christian side of the river and on the Judeo-Messianic side. And what you start to see come forth is, is a lack of fear of Yah. And um, it's really astounding for me to see at this time um, that there really is a lack of fear of Yah in the body in general. And when I say that, I'm not being critical of any individual position and whatnot. We need to have the joy in the Lord, the hope in uh, Yeshua Messiah and all of these sorts of things. But I'm seeing the body consume itself with a lot of shenanigans right now. It's kind of doing its thing. And, and all of this doesn't appear to include a lack of, uh, uh, sorry, a fear for Elohim, which is the right reverent fear so that we will remain humble and uh, we can deal with our pride and things like that. Um, this ultimately leads to bringing fear of man and circumstances versus the fear of Yah. So if we don't have our fear in Yah, we're going to have our fear in man and in circumstances. So we want to have our fear in the right place, especially right now. And of course, all of this can bring down nations. And of course, we read this uh, concerning the house of Israel. So whenever we're looking at something like this, I really want to make this point, when Israel overcomes its greatest weaknesses, when we do this, then it becomes its greatest strength again for his service. When we overcome spiritual adultery, 
when we overcome even the matters afflicting our lives or things and the Father is pushing us through things or circumstances in our lives, when we overcome something, that is when true authority comes into the picture. It's not theoretical. When people overcome even matters in their life in the flesh, they will have an authority. They'll be able to speak with an authority on those matters. And you'll know if anybody's been struggling with something in the flesh and you deal with somebody who's also gone through that same struggle, but they've overcome it, um, they will be able to speak with a sense of authority. And you'll find yourself listening to them. And it won't be based on, you know, a whole bunch of criteria. It will be based on uh, where the rubber hit the road. Where did this person come from? What did they experience and what did they overcome? And now it would be behoof of anyone to listen to the wisdom of that person if they've actually overcome. So overcoming brings authority. Well, the same thing happens in the spiritual sense. When we overcome the spiritual leaven in our houses, the things of the enemy, we will start to have uh, an authority on um, the simplicity and the truth of our Father's great plan of redemption. And so we really do sometimes, everybody's aware that who put Joseph and the Hebrews into Egypt? Who was that? Correct. It was Elohim who did that. <laughs> so why would he send us, you know, who, who had us born into a world that was spiritually adulterous? Correct. Elohim did. And so he is testing us and he is wanting us to go through these matters to see what we're going to choose. And we're going to allow the rook to break through the hostile jamming and get and reach into our hearts, reach into our lives that we may overcome and that we would get to the simplicity um, that is found in Messiah, the truth that is found in him, the beauty of this. And as it relates to both the front of the book and the testimony of that, and this all involves the house of Israel and its 12 tribes. And uh, as everybody knows, if you've been earlier in the parts in the series, you will see that it all ends. Does everybody know it all ends with a restored house of Israel? And, of course, we will find this in the book of Revelation. And this is where it ends. And we'll also find it in the great prophets of the Old Testament of the Tanakh. So, meet the family. All right, what do we got in this family? We have liars. We have cheats. We have adulterers. We have fornicators. We have murderers. We have idolaters, disobedient people. We have cowards. We have those who are flaky. They're not reliable. They'll let you down. We have the greedy. We have those who are violent and still continue to want to deal with things in violent manners. We have the covetous. We have lovers of self, not lovers of Elohim. We have the prideful. And the worst of all, we have the self-righteous. What an awesome family! Now, if somebody said to you, I want you to meet your family, and you walked into the room, and these were the, some of the things that was going to be found amongst them, what would you say? That's a house I want to be a part of. <laughs> Yet these are the things that we see in Scripture. 
This is what's recorded and what afflicted the various tribes and and the people and the issues and the circumstances and the obedience, sorry, the disobedience and the things that we see going on. And all of these things have come forth. Now, that is a, a very interesting set of characteristics for a family. Is that a family we want to be a part of? Well, I'm going to go to the other side. Meet the repentant family. See, the flip side of this is the overcoming reality. We have those who are truthful. We have those with integrity. We have those who are faithful. We have those who are trustworthy. We have those who will sacrifice their own lives for others. We have those who are obedient. We have those with courage and with strength. We have those who are reliable. We have those who will give to others in need. We have those who are kind. We have those who are thankful to Elohim. We have those who will love others above themselves. We have those who are humble. And we have those, above all, who fear Yah. If we fear Yah, there will be no room for self-righteousness. We know the condition that we're in and the blood that we must have in order to cover our lives as we have missed the mark. We have sinned against our Elohim. But I also want to say that in this family there is a repentant aspect. And so who wants to be a part of that family? Hands up. <laughs> That's the overcoming repentance side. And we want to be a part of that. And so as we kind of look and meet the family, I want to more focus a little bit more on this side. Some of these attributes that really are the things we want to look towards that, uh, that mattered. And not just, you know, look at what we're not, but what we can be, what we have been, what we should be. You know, the things we can aspire to. And, uh, and so that's kind of, the, you know, the way we've been trying to look at this series and whatnot. So, again, yes, we can see all the things that have been in the family that uh, are um, disconcerting. <laughs> um, but repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we will see all the opposite of that come through. So as a result of all of this, we read in Deuteronomy, it's here in 28, uh, 1 to 2. Blessings and curses here. So he says, If you faithfully obey the voice of Yah, your Elohim, being careful to do all his commandments, that I command you today, Yah, your Elohim, will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Isn't that interesting? Has anybody ever thought of blessings overtaking you? In other words, they're beyond your capacity of what you hoped for or wished for, and that these blessings would be so much. You know, this is where the cup runneth over uh, sort of understanding comes from, from Hebraic thinking, that they could actually overtake you, that the blessings of Elohims could overtake us. This is a very, very, very real thing. Again, often missed when we're reading this. However, if you obey the voice of Yah, your Elohim. Now listen. And then it goes on to list all of these blessings there in Deuteronomy, and you go back and you read them right through. 
Um, and uh, they're just countless, and they're beautiful, and you look at these blessings. These blessings and cursings to the house of Israel are often confused in very poor eschatology, in my opinion, as to how they've been presented, because they take the blessings and the cursing, and then they make it, well, this is conditional prophecy and all that kind of stuff. I'm here to tell you there's no such thing as conditional prophecy. There is blessing and curses dependent on our repentance and our obedience. But this whole conditional prophecy and this stuff, and some of you may be aware of it, and it's been taught out there and whatnot. Please, his prophecy and his plan and his time domain, his ability to know the beginning from the end is not subject to blessing and curses. What's subject to blessing and curses is our walk before him, with him, and with others. And so this is very important. We don't mix the two. Um, and some of this stuff has been mixed uh, together with some very poor teaching. Of course, after all the blessings are listed in Deuteronomy, we'll get to 28.15. It says, but if you will not obey the voice of Yah, your Elohim, or be careful to do all his commandments. So we want this thing written on our heart. We're going to do it. Does everybody know that if something's on your heart, are you likely to do it or not do it? <laughs> You're likely to do it. Yes. When something gets on the heart, you don't have to be badgering somebody to do it. So whatever we're doing, whatever we're caught up in, you will know that that's in that person's heart. So if it marks the characteristic of who we are, then it is something that is on the heart. It's a heart matter. It's a heart issue. So if it's something that can bring about blessing, this is a wonderful thing to have on our heart. And this is why he wants us to the ketubah, to the covenant essentially our covenant with Elohim, because this will bring uh, the blessings. But if we don't get this thing written on our hearts and we don't care about his statues and his ways, that he's saying that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So now the curses can overtake us. And so then it goes on to list what those curses are. The reason why I raise this at this point is that these are the things laid down in Torah which are not negotiable. Elohim changes not. Everyone understands that? He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. So he's putting blessing and cursings in place to the house of Israel, and he's directly relating this to the covenant and his statutes. So this is serious. Now, if you don't know you're the house of Israel, if this identity has been robbed of you, if you don't know you're being called back to a restored house, if we don't understand his great plan of redemption, all of it, the marriage covenant, the blood that would buy us, the restored house of Israel, if we don't get the full gospel, then you're not going to be reading this first person. And many of you may have read this for a lot of your life going, oh, those poor Jews. <laughs> and you read these things and you go, well, sucks to be them. Until you find out one day, that wait a minute, I'm being called into the house of Israel and suddenly the Torah or the front of the book starts to read first person. And when that happens, suddenly these blessings and curses and the things that we're looking at and even some of the attributes of what we're seeing in the house start to matter, literally. It's very real. He has not changed. So what does this mean then under, you know, the blood of Messiah? What does this mean? 
you know, with uh, these things now being written onto our heart. Well, okay, we're going to a greater or a weightier matter. But that doesn't mean that suddenly the foundations of the faith just have been wiped away. In fact, this is the whole foundation of what our faith has been built on. So we want to understand these things because the, uh, the, the, the strengths of the house of Israel still matter to this day, right now. And they're going to really matter in the uh, months, years uh, uh, ahead of us um, in these incredible times. Okay, so the family crest. Is, it, is everybody aware there's, in, you know, and we still hold this in a lot of our cultures. We have a family crest, and, you know, some of you, maybe some of you that have come out of, you know, uh, Scotland or the British Isles or whatnot, there's very big on this. And, of course, much of the spreading out of the British Isles and out of Scotland and, and that whole region of the world was based on crests. And a lot of these crests, interestingly enough, have origins that relate back to um, actually the 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting just doing a whole look at, at that whole thing, that there were people that came into this area of the world that held certain understandings of the house of Israel. And these are still, to this day, embedded in a lot of the crests and symbolism that we'll see coming out of that part of the world. But the reason why I mention this is that um, a lot of what came out of the British Isles really um, British, um, in Hebrew, Brit, covenant, ish man so covenant man went out and this predominantly came out into uh, what we think of as the united states and canada and south africa new zealand australia and so a lot of this spread out and these became some of the most blessed nations on earth uh, i believe directly uh, lining up with certain prophecies particularly re relating to ephraim and manasseh but as a part of the house of Israel going right back to uh, Sinai, it seems that Elohim's, uh, he's into a family crest. And so I'm just wanting to mention this at the start of this as we start to look at some of the various tribes, um, only from this sense that Elohim established something to go into the breastplate of the high priest. Now we know that Yeshua is, gonna, is our high priest, and this is revealed in the Brit Hadashah. So there's a family crest that Yeshua apparently... I believe we'll be wearing. And so this isn't just, you know, just purely decorative stuff and things like this. It is, it is something that he's wishing us to uh, sort of have an understanding of because we're going to see some interesting things revealed also in, in Revelation. But anyways, a part of this in, uh, in the Torah in Exodus 28, 17 to 21, it goes on to list these stones and it goes through all of them, you know, um, and sort of they're going to be placed onto the breastplate or the family crest of the house of Israel and the high priest is going to don this. Um, and it just says, I'll read here in 21, verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So our father is definitely saying, yes, we have a family crest and all the 12 components of it. And I want this understood, and I am marking elements of my creation and assigning that to each of the components of the house of Israel. So there's just a practicality here that the Father wants us to understand that there is an identification or assigned to his house. And he's done this in various ways um, as it relates to high priest, to the instructions of 
uh, you know, various things that we start to learn and understand in the house of Israel, which start to make us a peculiar people in the end. It starts to set us apart from whatever bondage we're under. And of course, we see that bondage in scripture throughout Egypt and Babylonian and Rome. And we see these various forms of bondage that have always been in play, affecting, trying to bring a house back to repentance. And that bondage bringing us back to repentance, restoring us back to his ways. Um, and as we're doing so, we're always a peculiar people to the people that have us in bondage. And so right now on the earth, does anybody feel peculiar right now with Rome acting? Yeah. And it's meant to be that way. Don't, don't think it's strange. It's meant you're meant to stand out, not stand out by going around being self-righteously, telling everybody they're going to, you know, burn in hell forever. To actually be a witness of your faith and a witness of the gospel, the hope that we have in Messiah. Because that weirdness is going to give us an opportunity to actually share the great hope of Messiah and his great plan of redemption. So we were to be a witness, a light. Instead, we have chosen to get all involved in religious dogma and we've now become blowhorns and we're running around screaming with our megaphones and we're wondering why somebody is not interested in us because it's, we've, we've not been the witness and the light. We've chosen to try and be just purely a mouthpiece. And so as doing that, the Father's getting us back to understanding what we are because I believe that there'll be a great witness for a great harvest that is coming. And we will have to be set apart and we will have to be seen as peculiar as a result. Now, in the bus break, there's a lot of conversations around this and the layout of the stones and things like this. I don't really want to get caught up into this because, it, and the only reason why I'm going to mention it is that almost so that you don't, because nobody knows for sure. And I've got a picture there based out of some thinking in Jerusalem of, you know, what the layout of these stones and the layout of the tribes on the plate and whatnot. There, there is no, um, there is no definitive uh, answer uh, that uh, I have seen um, in scripture as to this. Now, this doesn't mean that it still isn't something that will be fully revealed by time Messiah comes, but a lot of conversations today will exist the order of the birth of the 12 sons uh, out of Jacob. Um, is it the order of the wilderness camp? And the order of the marching orders into the promised land and the, and the tribes, the order of the land allotments following that. These are some of the discussions that exist around this and that perhaps the, break the breastplate will mirror this or mask this as a reason for it. Um, I tend, and just for the sake of this, and it doesn't mean I'm right, but I tend to go with the order of the wilderness camp and the marching orders into the promised land. There is a confirmation of that witness in, in Torah and I believe that if there is any chance of the order and how this is arranged on the breastplate, that it is somehow going to be linked to those two things. I don't believe that to be a coincidence that he's establishing this family crest in line with a particular order of the encampment, as well as when they headed into the promised land. However, before I speak a little bit more on this, I'm going to make this very clear. In the revelation of Yeshua, it clearly talks about in chapter 21, the restored house. And it gets back to these gemstones and what's going to be there in our, uh, in our eternal hangout, if you will. And these are going to be marked with these same things. So the family crest is going to have a foundational place in what Revelation of Yeshua describes as the New Jerusalem. So whatever your position may be, we know we're getting back to it and it's a part of his, uh, his eternal plan. 
And so it's a big deal. And so we see all these stones again laid out in our eternal hangout in the book of Revelation in 21, uh, uh, 21, 14, 15, where you, um, 14 and 15, where you'll be able to sort of read these and go through. Now, don't think of these things as a coincidence. Okay? They're not. He's, you know, this is the, you know, we've got the Torah, we've got, you know, the beginning of uh, understanding the foundations of our faith, and then we got the revelation of Yeshua, which is the Tav, or the end of our faith. And, and it's ending with this incredible symbolism of the New Jerusalem. So this order of birth, um, going back to Sinai and looking at uh, the actual order of the birth of the sons of Jacob. Now, this is sort of interesting because the layout changes, as we looked at earlier, when it came into the layout of the encampments actually in Sinai. And of course, we talked about that if you were to have an aerial view and you were to be looking uh, east to west um, from that aerial view, you would actually see that the formation of these tribes would have made an ancient Tav in the wilderness from, from the air. I don't believe that to be a coincidence. And uh, that ancient Tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, very pronounced in the ancient Paleo-Hebrew. Uh, and so we see these kind of connections and we're going, wait a minute, you know, there's something going on. Now, they themselves um, may have been aware that it was making an ancient Tav, but certainly they wouldn't have had the clarity of seeing it from a helicopter, but they would have from the hills above looking down on the wilderness encampment. Um, and you'll be able to see that all recorded in Numbers 2, 1 to 33. And then, of course, I've got in the middle here, this is the home of what would be the, the Levites and uh, the priesthood, and, of course, the tabernacle and the presence of Elohim. We are, for the sake of this journey, we're just going to start with uh, the base of this. We're going to look at Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun, quickly today and just look at some things interesting in their, uh, in their journeys uh, and markers in Scripture. But I wanted to point out as well that what we saw the layout happen in the wilderness camp, we're also seeing a very interesting set of instructions on the marching orders into the wilderness. And we're seeing this in the Torah in Numbers uh, 10, um, 14 to 28. And they're going into the promised land. Now, there's something interesting here in this layout. He's keeping them together in this order, and they're going forth. Okay? Now, what is fascinating, though, is what went first was the ark. So the priestly duties of the Levites, you know, and the Levites aren't, you know, wishy-washy. These are, these are our warrior people. But they're doing their priestly duties, and the thing that is marking this going into the Promised Land, first and foremost, is the ark, the presence of Elohim. So Elohim is going before them. And you're seeing this particular instructions being given to uh, the Levites to actually bring this first. And then you've got Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun. And they're coming in after this. And then all of a sudden you got, again, this break with Levi in there. Now they've got the tabernacle furnishings and the altar around these priestly duties. So the things that go uh, now with the practices that he had laid out in Torah. And then we got Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And then we see the game. Levi makes a break in it. And now they've got the actual tabernacle that they're carrying. 
So you're seeing this in order of, you know, Yah going first, then the things of obedience and, and uh, the things that he's asked as a part of that obedience to him, these furnishings of the tabernacle. And then, of course, the actual tabernacle set up itself. And then what follows in behind them is Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. So very interesting how he's kept this together. And this is why I tend to look at this whole breastplate in that way. Uh, back in mentioning the family crest here. So if you look at this and the way that I look at it, and so I just want you to know the way that I have come to assign uh, the stone and the color to it is not that it makes me correct, but I do believe the witnesses are there from the wilderness encampment and the march into the promised land. Um, I do believe that there's no coincidence we're seeing the ancient of, and we've got this family crest and he's laying it out. The question then is, is how do you lay it out and how do you look at it? And this is the way I've been led to look at it. And so I'm just sharing that with you today, that um, I look at the stake that the crossbeam would be married to that would eventually form this ancient top. So if you look at the stake and the stake gets put into the ground um, and uh, you look at it, you know, sort of a stake from top to bottom. If if I look at the sort of the top of this stake, it's it's interesting if I start to lay out the first line of the breastplate. Now, this breastplate image here does not agree with what I'm doing, although it does on the middle line, which is interesting. Uh, and I'd love to one day know how, because that is a, something that we share similar and how they've laid it out. Um, but the way that I look at it, I'm just going to explain to you is from an ancient top position. And so if I take the top of the stake and I look at Ephraim and Nassif coming both from Joseph, uh, and Benjamin, you've got the Sardos, the Topaz, the Carbonicle, that all represent um, these colors. And if that was at the very top, going left to right, Hebrew, you would see, um, interesting, that associated to Ephraim is the Sardos, which is often blood red in its nature. You'd see with Manasseh is Topaz, which is a gold and a yellow, and with Benjamin, uh, sort of the ruby red stone. What I find fascinating at the head or the top of the stake um, is where all the action would be happening with a crown and blood. And these colors do tend to signify or um, certainly seem to represent what would be at the head of this. Does, it, does that have any merit at all? I don't know. But I do find that personally fascinating that these sort of colors um, really do have this, you know, almost this... Uh, ancient Tav death crucifixion sort of coloring that would be going on at the head. Um, so I find that fascinating. Then left to right again, second row, we'd be seeing Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun. And if, uh, in, and in that sense then, um, we're looking at Judah, the diamond, the white and sort of clear. Um, sapphire, interestingly enough, is um, associated uh, with Ishakar. Um, with the tribe of Ishakar, and uh, that would be blue. And we've talked about that. Anybody who's seen uh, Elohim in blue, which is interesting. Um, Zebulun being the emerald and the green, and uh, Reuben, the amethyst with the purple, uh, Simeon, Agat, which is more of a brownish, uh, the Gad, the Jacinth, the orange, the reddish color, Asher, uh, which is a jasper, which is multicolored, many colors involved with that. Dan, onyx, which is associated with black. Interesting that Dan kind of goes through some dark periods as a tribe. <laughs> I found that really interesting as well when I laid it out this way. And Naphtali uh, with the burrow is also very multicolored and comes in various forms. And again, I think there could be allusions there even to just the spreading out um, 
of the house of Israel to its various cultures, skin colors, and, and whatever. But again, I just show you that so that at least you'll know um, just how I look at, you know, certain things that I'm looking at this. But there are various arguments, various ways, different sort of things that go with this. Um, and I'm, I'm saying it's not something to get caught up in. But it is interesting that there will be, at the end of all of this, there will be a truth that is established by Messiah. Because the family crest was real. And even though we may not, we may have our disagreements on how this lines up to color uh, and tribe, there is a truth here that we will one day know again. And so I'm saying don't get caught up with this, but just looking at something can often be just interesting. And so, again, we go and look at these things. So, meet the family. Today, I just want to look at Judah, Ishakar, and Zebulun as we just have a look at things. And just to generally go, okay, well, in our family, but we're going to try and look at this from the zeal on the repentant side or when they were in a good place and just a little bit to distinguish them. Now, Judah, this tribe, the tribe of kings, um, this is the most predominant of all the tribes in the entire biblical narrative. So Judah has a disproportionate reality being shared both in with uh, a lot of its um, notable tribesmen and references and things throughout Scripture. Um, Judah, and I've got here, quoting from the Scripture here, prevailed over his brothers in the tribes and territories, which included the city of Jerusalem, the Holy Temple. Now, Reuben was actually the firstborn, if you know the order, and that we showed in the sons of Jacob there. But he could not control himself. We'll look at that uh, essentially here in a second. But in reality... He's, Judah is prevailing over the brothers, and he'd ultimately be tasked with carrying the scepter until the coming of Messiah. But generally, as everybody knows, it's the birthright of the firstborn in Reuben. But Reuben was involved with something that disqualified him. This gets into uh, some of the weakness, and this physical typology paints to a spiritual picture. Uh, King David was of this tribe, the royal line of Jerusalem, uh, and, and so on. And then we've got the actual seed and bloodline of Yeshua Messiah would come from Judah. And we see, and we've talked about that in earlier teachings, how this came through and eventually down through Mary, one from the legal and one from the lineage, uh, the physical lineage. And so it's a very interesting thing that Messiah himself would be attached to Judah. Now, some of the notable tribesmen's or references in Scripture, I've got here Caleb, David, Solomon, Mary, and of course Yeshua Messiah. Um, and we'll just look at a couple of things here. But the name or the meaning of Judah is praise. You know, so we've got this praise attachment to it. Its tribal symbol is a lion. You're going to find that a lot of these things come from or are associated with the blessings that both came from, uh, um, uh, that came from Jacob and from Moshe, from Moses. And so we're seeing some of these things established by Torah as in regarding their symbols and meanings. So, Judah will carry the scepter. In 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2 here, we've got the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Now, this is going to link, uh, link into Ephraim and Manasseh. To the sons of Joseph of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the eldest son. Now, what he had done is he had slept with his father's concubine. So here's some of those attributes in the family that, okay, <laughs> not a great thing. And uh, there was some punishment there, uh, some big punishment. But again, that 
physical thing starts to get into the weakness or the passion or the zeal that sits within the house of Israel. And of course, if that points to, if the physical is pointing to the weightier matter, which is the spiritual, then there's an involvement there with spiritual uh, whoring. And so we're going to see that there's going to be things that Reuben will get caught up in, you know, um, as a part of that as well, and we see in Scripture, and a part of the scattered tribes of the house of Israel for their spiritual adultery. Um, it says here, uh, continuing on, though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, and of course this is relating King David, um, and ultimately Messiah, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So First Chronicles is making the point again. There's these birthrights that it will go to the house of Israel, and they'll particularly relate to Joseph, and of course, thank Ephraim and Manasseh. We'll just hold that there, but just keep that thought in mind as we go through the next parts in this series. In Numbers 13, 30 to 31, I want to mention something here that I, it's always an incredible thing of what Caleb's response was. Remember, they sent the spies out into the land and they're going, you know, they're being told to go and take the land, so they are going and spying it out and uh, doing their strategic and tactical homework, you know, what are we facing? And of course they come back and a lot of them are uh, freaking out about what they saw. But I wanna show you Caleb's response. And again, the reason why I raised this is because right now we can be looking at the world in front of us and going, my goodness, this new world order seems like they're giants and we're just grasshoppers to them and all this kind of a thing. And I want to just reiterate here the zeal of Caleb as a part of this, this, uh, the tribe of Yehuda. But Caleb quieted the people before Moshe and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Now, this was his position. This was not the position or the report given to the people of the house of Israel from 10 of them, at least, as recorded in scriptures. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, Caleb's zeal here is the thing we are looking for. He was not afraid. He knew that Elohim goes before me, and we will overcome if Elohim is for us. Now, you imagine Caleb right now being on earth, facing what we're facing. What do you think Caleb's response would be to what he's experiencing on the earth, what we're all experiencing on the earth today? Do you see him as a coward suddenly? Or would we see a man that goes, no, we will overcome, but Elohim will go before us? Do you see the point I'm making? This is the strength of the house of Israel, and you are seeing it in a very physical, literal way. There's no way in the world we can beat these guys. Now, honestly, if you were looking at the strength of the stronghold, if you were looking at, you know, um, what they believed they were seeing or what we believe to be Nephilim, which were very large human beings uh, at this point. Um, in fact, they said we're like grasshoppers to them. It's understandable from a flesh perspective, pure flesh perspective. The other men weren't being unreasonable. They're coming back with an honest report. But there's fear in them. But what I believe Caleb knew what he absolutely knew was Elohim goes before me. Therefore, we overcome. Amen? 
Does everyone get that? And that is a quality from the house of Yehuda and Caleb that I believe is demonstrated and is very, very relevant for us today to understand Elohim will go before us and Yeshua will overcome and there will be Elohim's plan that will march forward. <laughs> there is going to be the fulfillment of the promised land in its completeness and its totality regarding the house of Israel. And this is what your scripture says. Right now, can I just suggest to everybody, let's have the zeal of Caleb. This is an attribute in the house we want. Amen? Okay. Jacob's blessing on Judah. In Genesis 49, 8-9, says here, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. So we get, you know, the, the meaning praise of Yehuda. Your hand shall be on your neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, who are we starting to talk about here? This is interesting. You're going to remember the dreams of Joseph and things like this. You're going to start to see that this is all talking about the one who would come, the lion of the tribe of Judah. We are directly in referencing here in the blessing also great prophecies of Messiah. Judah is a lion cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Okay, so this is reflecting both the female and male design. Who dares arouse him? I know a lot of men will be thinking that about their wives. Who dare arouse her? And that would be wisdom. Okay. So it goes on here in 49, 10 to 11. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda. So we know this is the great prophecies of Shiloh, which I like to mention. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. To him, i.e. the antecedent, is Shiloh or the Messiah. Binding his foal to the vine of his donkey's colt. And of course, we see that actually happen with Yeshua. Give me the donkey, give me the unbroken young one. And, uh, and so we saw that play out. And these incredible sort of prophecies here pointing to Messiah are captured here in Genesis and the Torah. To the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And of course, we understand a lot of things that go back there, which I try to point out in the teaching of Elohim in blue concerning the actual garments of the high priest. And how literal some of all of this actually is. So Judah has got a task here in this blessing to carry the scepter till Messiah. And so there's just in so many ways we're indebted to our brothers in the house of Israel to Yehuda. You know, in, in this task that it was given, even though it would also fall to spiritual adultery in the end. There was a task given to it and without that task from our brethren in the house, none of us would be able to meet and speak and deal with certain things the way that we are. Now, Moses's, Moshe's blessing. It says here in Deuteronomy in the Torah in 33.7, he says, And this he said to Yehuda, or to Judah, O hear, O Yah, the voice of Judah. Hear the voice of Judah. So he's crying out. Moshe is saying, Yah. And everyone knows that Moshe apparently had a pretty good connection <laughs> to, you know, to Yeshua here. Um, so he's making these statements and make no mistake who's hearing them. Yeshua is. There's no guessing here. I suggest to you Yeshua's was, uh, was a prayer. Moshe was a prayer that Yeshua heard. So these are interesting blessings coming from him. And bring to him his people. 
bring to him his people. With your hands, contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Now, if you bring that into the connection of Jacob and the carrying of a scepter, wow, that would truly have to be the case, especially after Babylonian captivity, even during Babylonian captivity, and getting back to certain things being established, which needed to be in play for the arrival of Messiah to take place. And so there's incredible things that were going on here if we can just step back pre the coming of Messiah and understanding the certain roles here. We are indeed indebted to Yehuda. I believe we've been in, in the house of Israel in a lot of ways has been indebted to Yehuda right through up to this day. Okay. And of course, there's a lot there on Yehuda. Um, and we'll touch on various aspects as we continue to go through the tribes because Yehuda kind of pops up everywhere. Uh, Judah pops up everywhere as we look at the various aspects of the family. Now, Ishakar. This, who here thinks that I, I have a special affinity with this particular one? Does anybody know the symbol of it? Yeah, you, you better believe I do. And that actually came over a revelation following the affinity uh, to this whole donkey thing. Um, and a lot of the things that he started to reveal about this great picture of servitude. Um, I absolutely um, uh, fell in love with, with Ishakar uh, almost 13 years ago and did not know why. Um, I think I understand much more now, but, but this beautiful thing, and the father would just keep revealing things and things like this. I, and to be quite honest with you, at the expense of, in the way I've laid this out, I could, we could do three parts on Ishakar alone, um, as certainly given my biases. But I'm going to keep it in fair into the teaching and how we're looking and going through the various tribes. But Ishakar um, is a very interesting tribe. Ishakar does not get, although a lot or a large amount of mention in the biblical narrative overall. However, the tribe was known for its loyalty and its wisdom. So this particular part of the house is known for these qualities. At the time of King David, um, it was known to be strategic in nature, and men known as men who understood the times and the knowledge of what Israel was to do. Okay, and of course, in times of battle and war, this would be very, very valuable to have as a part of your household. They were also known as mighty men of valors. And you'll see this recorded in 1 Chronicles 7.5. The notable tribesmen's references uh, are sparse when it comes to actual people related to Ishakar. What is of interesting mention, and we'll talk about this, is Deborah, the, the great judge and uh, uh, woman of Elohim uh, from, from the tribe of Ephraim and Barak from Naphtali. They commended particularly the tribe of Ishakar regarding, and this was relating to the destruction of Jabin and the king, the king of Canaan, and was very highly, apparently highly regarded by King David. So this is interesting as a king. So we've got the chief or the king uh, from the tribe of Yehuda, but they particularly sought out uh, Ishakar for a reason. The name or the meaning of Ishakar is there is a reward. Um, and I personally believe that directly links back to the overcoming and um, the positioning of the bride and Messiah. The tribal symbol, interestingly enough, though, is a donkey. Now, you wouldn't associate, think about a modern Western terms in this, okay, when it comes to Ishakar. When you think donkey, and think of the, the slag that a donkey has gotten, especially from Western terms, because let's be honest, 
they're not exactly the most graceful creature when you look at them compared to a horse and other beautiful creatures. You know, donkeys maybe don't have the best of an appearance. Um, they certainly don't sound great. Um, they're quite an annoying sound when they get going uh, and that kind of a thing. So do we particularly appoint to a donkey that this is, you know, loyalty? Do we think of wisdom when it comes to a donkey? Do, do we think of something, you know? These are things that aren't traditionally attached to our Western concept of it. Yet, if you go to the Middle East, these are things that are actually associated to this animal. They know, and donkeys are considered and are exceptionally intelligent creatures. They are exceptionally loyal, and they are exceptionally brave. And so we don't tend to think of it that way, but these are absolute qualities that come through. So it makes sense that Ishakar could be associated with such a thing. All right, so we'll look at this. Ishakar's deal. So in Judges 5.15 here, it's very interesting. The princes of Ishakar came with Deborah and Ishakar faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. So you've got this Ishakar realities being brought in into this time of battle and war. And this is how it's being reflected, okay, in scripture. And it's getting down to the great searchings of heart. So this was still, and what's being reflected here is a heart matter. Well, what was going on the heart? What was the zeal? Well, the zeal was a particular loyalty to something, and, um, and they weren't considered flaky. And uh, so to go into battle with Ishakar was something that they wished and wanted to do. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, 33, you'll see this. Of Ishakar, the men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kingsmen under their command. Of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David and with a single purpose, singleness of purpose. This is where the blessing, okay, um, in, in these mentions of both Ishakar and Zebulun. Now, they were going to be positioned together in the wilderness. It's no doubt, and you'll see this in Scripture, that this is referenced together, and you'll see them together um, even in the blessings. Um, I think they were very close. The, the tribes and their positioning, especially in the wilderness, uh, there's something interesting. And Ishakar uh, was to lie down between Zebulun and Yehuda. And these were going to be some of the very first that would come into the promised land. And so Yah's marching before them, and he's got these three coming together and had them camp together in the wilderness for all those years. And so they would have been very familiar with each other as siblings. Think of it that way. They were close to one another. They knew one another. Okay? So they, and that's because they're basically living together in, the, in, the, in this wilderness as they're learning and understanding the faith. Make no coincidence that they're mentioned often together. In Genesis 49, uh, 14 to 15, we see Jacob's blessing on this in Ishakar. Ishakar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. Those sheepfolds we would then come to discover was Zebulun and Yehuda. He saw that a resting place was good. I believe that's direct reference and that the land was pleasant to this whole event that we saw in the wilderness and then going into the promised land. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor or in active labor or in bond servitude. In other words, the choice of Ishakar was to serve. 
these things so that they could do it well, so that they could back them up, that we, they would, you know, I've got your back. Who's your brother's keeper? And they had certain strengths that allowed them to be able to be a part of that in a very intimate way, particular with Zebulun and Yehuda. And so we see this actually come through in the actual blessings. And of course, we see the symbol of Ishakar uh, and where you get the donkey from and, and things like this. So it's being referred to. Now, again, a strong donkey is considered a blessing and a compliment, not the, generally the way we think of things in the West. Now, interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19, Moshe's blessing on Ishakar. Look who he mentions with this. And Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Ishakar in your tents. So now Moshe is very aware how close these siblings are. And they're actually uh, working together and, uh, and doing their thing in the wilderness. They shall call peoples to their mountain, and they offer right sacrifices. So spiritually, apparently these two tribes, are they're getting it right. Spiritually, for they draw from the abundance of the seas. And we know the typology of the seas, interestingly enough, obviously abundance, you know, with, you know, physically with food in the seas. But what is very interesting is seas um, also represent humanity. They're drawing from the abundance of the people, you know, associated with the house of Israel. So particularly... Interestingly enough, I believe there's an indication here that Ishakar and Zebulun are going to be connected widely to the whole house of Israel or the rest of the remaining tribes. Particularly what they were given, and, and, and I believe because of their spiritual right sacrifices and things, they were going to be something the father was going to put amongst the rest of the siblings. They would need essentially the strengths, the zeal that particularly related to Ishakar and to Zebulun. And so again, we won't think of it this way until we start to think of it as a house and of siblings and things that are going to be scattered and what's going to be sent. Interestingly enough, um, I was drawn to New Zealand. And it was funny in New Zealand, um, this gets back to even things that are mentioned around the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the Maori indigenous people there. And there's legends of many of those people. Uh, and you'll actually see in the Treaty of Waitangi even um, the vestiges of ancient Paleo-Hebrew. Paleo what is interesting is that that nation in itself and the farthest reaches of the earth across the seas, um, and we'll talk about that when we get to Zebulun, um, they identify their lost tribe with Zebulun. It was interesting how I was drawn to go to the ends of the earth, and it was a particular area of the world that, you know, for those that are aware of certain migration and things, believe, at least in their ancient indigenous cultures, that there may be a link to Zebulun and, uh, and to the ancient Paleo-Hebrew. So there's just fascinating things there on the New Zealand side as we start to look now at Zebulun. And, of course, Zebulun... Um, I believe that overall, it gets little overall mentioned in the biblical narrative, but again, I think playing a very big role ultimately behind the scenes with its siblings uh, throughout the house of Israel. And so this is an important way. I'm just trying to get you to look at these things because I believe the others are going to be recipients at times, just like Ephraim was, um, 
and Naphtali and why they referred particularly to Zebulun and Ishakar in those battles when they were going into war. They're giving mention of them because they want them there uh, for their counsel and also their zeal and their loyalty and their ability to fight. Um, the tribe was known to be loyal, strong fighting uh, force, particularly during the days of the judges and King David as well. Um, of course, we saw that with Ishakar. Zebulun had the largest presence in the army that stood with King David of Israel um, at Hebron. They served with him with an undivided heart. So Zebulun is getting very special mention or understanding here in the biblical narrative. Uh, again, I'm just reflecting a few points because uh, of where it's mentioned. Because Deborah from Ephraim, she commended the tribe of Zebulun in particular as well. And so, you know, you can kind of see this relationship that was building with Ishakar and, and Zebulun and also the reverence that Yehuda had for both of them. Again, I believe this came back to the establishment of the relationship that occurred based on the ancient top design in the wilderness camp. And it's just not often looked or understood this way. Yet you're going to see this kind of come through in Scripture. The, the name and meaning of Zebulun is dwelling. It's dwelling. And the tribal symbol was a ship. And so again, we see this in the, in the blessings and extracting from the sea and all that kind of a thing. So again, we go into certain aspects of Zebulun. It's fascinating. Now, Zebulun's zeal. So in Judges 5.18, this is where Deborah's saying, Zebulun is a people, okay, who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. Of course, that was from where Barak was from, from the, uh, the tribe of Naphtali. But this is interesting. Risked their lives to death. Was this a quality that was going to be seen in the early disciples in the Cahal? when they said they would go out following all these great events in the fulfillment of the spring Moedim, that they did not love their lives even unto death. The quality or the zeal of Zebulun came through, and this is a particular mention that is given to them, that they literally did not regard their own lives. Now, if you, does everybody know, if you're going into battle, do you want to be with some people that will fight to the death if your life is on the line as well? <laughs> You better believe it. There is no question. This is a quality in a modern society that is being lost. People are becoming flaky, disloyal, cowards. Everything you can imagine is starting to transform. Yet, if you've ever been in a situation where you need a brother or a sister, is this a quality that you want? Yeah. You know, I often look at and some of you know, we've got a, a dog named MJ. She's beautiful, beautiful, strong puppy. Uh, oh, well, she's an old, older girl now, but um, just a glorious creature in her prime. Um, she's half staffy and half Rhodesian. One was originally bred for bull baiting and the other was bred for lion hunting. <laughs> so she had quite a pedigree. Very, very, very strong dog, but very kind, but exceptionally courageous dog, almost to a fault with her zeal. But I always would look at her and I always think, ah, you've got the quality of Zebulun in you. You know, you know, this is, you know, this kind of thing in her. And what I mean by that is this, and we've had to watch this since we've come back to North America. We brought MJ with us uh, across the seas and she's now in North America. 
And um, she she is the sort of dog that, you know, if we came across and, you know, or whatever, maybe a bear or a mountain lion or something like that, um, MJ would save our lives without question. She would save our lives. But she would die doing it. She wouldn't give up. And so the last thing we would witness as our lives were being spared on an attack from a, you know, an enemy in, in the forest, and I use this as an example, would, would be her death. She would go to her death. She would not give up until we were safe. So this is something we have to watch with her when we're out walking in the forest or things like this and keeping her on a lead because if she wasn't, she would see it as a threat and, um, and ensure that we could escape. Um, and we've seen some examples where um, she literally fears nothing. She's exceptionally good with children. And um, I always used to say to, to our uh, brothers and sisters with younger children, I said, well, your, your children are in the safest you know, hands possible because nothing's coming near those kids right now. She would nanny the kids and walk around them and lie near them and watch them and make sure that they were always safe. It was interesting to watch. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful creature she is. Um, and unfortunately, even in her older age, she'd still do this as best as she could. It won't leave her. She has that zeal, that quality. And so this is the sort of dog that I love to have and wish to have. And it's the same way with our brothers and our sisters. And you can see why Zebulun would be looked towards if you were a king, like King David did, you know, and how he got to know in the relationship that occurred in the wilderness, they got to know who these people were. So when it came time where you needed loyalty and you needed battle and you needed to have your back covered, Zebulun was the part of the family you wanted to go to. And some of you might have big families and you have certain siblings and you think, well, like, heck, I'd go to her or him if I needed help. Where there might be other siblings in your family where you know exactly who you're going to if you need help or advice or things like that. So think of it like that in that way that this was something that was known. And it certainly is recorded for us to see uh, occurring at the time of King David and also in the judges with Deborah. So not lightly to be mentioned, this is a big deal. It was a big deal to them. So the Zebulun quality is something that you want walking with you. And if we need to overcome and finish the race, who wants to have a Zebulun with them, right? That's, that's something we want. So let's, let's overcome and see these qualities of the house of Israel come through us. Let, let that quality of Zebulun come through us because if it comes forth, it is a strength, a strength indeed. Standing with Yehuda. Okay, so again, we've already read this, but in 1 Chronicles 12, 33, this is why it's mentioned. Of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops, battle-hardened, it wasn't their first rodeo. They did it before, we'll do it now, and we'll do it again. That is marking who they are. And so, again, this was something that was known. Why you see seasoned troops. That's telling you something. This is telling you something you can rely on. Equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. In other words, we'll give you a hand here because we agree and see the purpose for which you're doing this and dealing with the Philistines and things like that. Like we're seeing 
the singleness of purpose. And we are with you, Yehuda. And so they come through, and this is why they want them with them. Um, this is good news to have on the team as you're going into battle. I'm going to mention something here as it relates to uh, Zebulun in a prophecy fulfilled. And this relates to um, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 9, 1 to 2. And it's often missed and overlooked. And, one, and some of the things is, we know that he roughly spent about 70 weeks roughly with his disciples, actually working with them as a Talmudine. Some then try and conjecture, well, then that was the length of Yeshua's ministry. Uh, and they forget this area that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, something that was very, very important that is linking to the fulfillment of a prophecy in, in uh, the great messianic prophecies contained in the book of Isaiah. The great prophet of Isaiah uh, often wrote some of the greatest messianic prophecies that we can find. And this is interesting because it's missed. Um, and as a result, there's, you know, there's teachings out there that say he only had a ministry of 70 weeks and things like that. Um, but I'm going to contend to you that his ministry was indeed over three years old. And, um, and again, we get the allusions to us understanding this in Matthew. So his time with the disciples might have been 70 weeks, but his ministry didn't start with them. And, and again, this was missed. Zebulun is mentioned in it, though. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into the Galilee. Okay, so Yeshua's hand, so John's being arrested, his thing's going down, he's, he's uh, had the mikvah, he's going through, and now he's leaving for the Galilee. So he's getting out of there. Now he gets out of there, and he leaves and goes to Nazareth, and he went and lived in, and then he went and lived in Capernaum. So he's gone to the Galilee, he's spending time in Nazareth, then he's going to Capernaum uh, by the sea, and then up in, in, and uh, seeing the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken, and this is interesting, by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, what was that? The land of Zebulun, and this is what was portioned out after they came into the promised land, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now remember Barak's uh, link to Naphtali and the relationship that, that would uh, um, uh, transpire in the referencing that was given even by Barak to Zebulun um, in the earlier scriptures we read earlier. It says here, by way of the sea. Wow, okay, so Yeshua is going to be doing this on land and sea. And he's going to be going into the northern parts, the northern parts of the kingdom of Israel as it had been land allotted. Now this is interesting. And the land of Naphtali, by the way, of the sea. Beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, or the Goyim. Now, we've got something interesting here. He's traveling by sea, walking, maybe a donkey at best, and we're traveling vast areas, long areas, and he's, he's going to fulfill something. I can suggest to you that this is not happening over a couple of days. We're seeing various markers where he's staying and giving time allotments. So by the time he had made it back into the Galilee, he actually had a name for himself as a master. Well, you don't get that unless you've spent time doing serious ministry, fulfilling prophecy. Does that make sense to everyone? So he just didn't magically pop out and go, hey, fishermen, let's go and, you know, change the course of human history. There was something going on where he was becoming a recognized master, and it's actually relating to these great prophecy, messianic prophecies in Isaiah 9, 1, 2. 
goes on to say here in Matthew 4, uh, 16 to 17. The people dwelling in darkness. So by this time, they're actually are not. They've lost the light. They've lost the understanding of, you know, the great plan of redemption or the fullness of the gospel that a groom was going to come back to actually purchase a wayward bride. And, uh, and so he's going out to witness this. Now, I believe some of these people from Zebulun and Naphtali that are particularly mentioned here would have been three years later experiencing the literal fulfillment of Shavuot because of the ministry of Yeshua. So they would have come down after receiving the fullness of the gospel and gone, oh, okay, so we, we can be brought back into the house. Um, and so he's giving quite an interesting message here. He says they're dwelling in darkness, but they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, uh, in the region and shadow of death, shadow of death is a direct relationship to the term Sheol where we go to the grave, or, you know, we even had a modern term, rest in peace. So we're all living under the shadow of death, of going in to Sheol. Everybody's, you understand that? So this is, this is a, an idiom. You know, they're in the shadow of death. Well, what are we going to do once we die? That's it. It's over. <laughs> and so that's why it's making that point. They're going, that's it, we're finished. You know, life snuffed out, you know, lived once, died twice. <laughs> then Yeshua comes and goes, no. He's saying, die once, live twice. I'm here. Let me tell you the good news. Do you see the difference now? And so this whole great light is being shined into this region of darkness. And this whole period that was taking place before he would come back into Judea and before he would come back and work with his Talmudin, which would then go on to uh, administer and be a part of growing the early Kahal that would change the course of human history. From that time, Yeshua began to preach. Okay? So this is definitely a ministry effort. <laughs> okay? No doubt about it. Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Die once, live twice. And he's coming with the full message and this beautiful, beautiful uh, prophecy fulfilled. Okay, so Jacob's blessing on Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Hmm. Where did Yeshua go? By the way of the sea. What was going to be allotted? Well, that's exactly what we see. And so you're seeing something right back in the Torah that would transpire and that would have incredible meaning in prophecy fulfilled through Isaiah right through to the coming of Messiah and then the start of Messiah's ministry. So these are really interesting connections here. Zebulun shall dwell on the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships. Now you'll start to see. Well, wait a minute. That's exactly. Who knew that Elohim, that, that this would be something that would be associated to Zebulun as a part of promised land allotments? Well, Elohim did. So that's why it was being given in Jacob's blessing. Jacob wouldn't have known how this was all going to play out. But the blessing that he's saying on them, this is the way I see it for you, son. And I believe that Elohim's working and honoring this right through from the wilderness to the promised land to the allotments, right through to the coming of Yeshua and the giving of the good news. And so you're seeing this come right through. Shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Saddam. Now Moshe's blessing. 
again. This included and together was the same blessing because he included, Moshe included, Zebulun and Issachar. Now he goes, and of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out. So you're going to go out. There's going to be travel. And Issachar in your tents. So there's mobility here. The, apparently these tribes are going to go amongst the house of Israel. And, they, and so you're going to see often associated with Issachar and I believe Zebulun, these are going to be a people of travel. And so they're going to be doing this. They shall call peoples to their mountain. So they're going to be calling them to the mountain of Yeshua. And they offer right sacrifices. We've already talked about that. They draw from the abundance of the seas, the people. And look at this. The hidden treasures of the sand. The pearls of great price. These are a people that are going to be used to do something. They're going to pull the pearls of great price out. And they're going to be a part of this traveling out and this going out and working with the whole house of Israel. And so there were special things that were going to be associated with them um, as a part of being positioned, I believe, with Yehuda in the wilderness. And so at the base of the stake, you know, at the base of the ancient Tav, we've got this foundation and these three incredible siblings were going to play a great part in a lot of things and how they've unfolded throughout Scripture. Okay, so we're going to stop there today looking at these first three. But what a family so far. Who agrees? Amen? Yeah, incredible. And the zeal of that family coming through and the courage and the strength. So to finish off the teaching here today, I want to leave this with you. Steadfast and unmovable zeal at the base of the ancient Tav and these incredible, credible siblings that would go forth in the zeal of the house of Israel, its greatest strength. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 58, in the New Testament, in the Brit Hadashah, we see this. But to Elohim, which gives us the victory, the ark, the covenant is going first. Who's the victory come from? Our own strength or from Elohim? And we've got Yeshua HaMashiach is coming to deal with the earth. <laughs> and the victory will be with him. Okay? And this is a message for us, not only as a message of hope, but a message of delivering the gospel at this time as a set-apart and peculiar people. And so we want to be a part of the strengths in the family. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of Yah, so this is being spoken now to the house of Israel. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in Yah, if our service, our forced labor, our bond servitude, if it be for Yah, it is not in vain. And this is the thing that we must know, but he is the victor. It will not be accomplished by our little doctrine, schemes, efforts in the flesh, all these sorts of things. He is bringing us to a point where the lion of the tribe of Yehuda is going to be the victor. He's going to come forth, just as we saw that ark come forth. The covenant was, it was the issue. If it is written on our heart, Messiah is going to come forth with the covenant of those, with those people from the house of Israel with the covenant written on their heart. And I believe we're going to see it come uh, with his saints at the time in the fulfillment of, of atonement. 
So we have this great gathering that's going to occur at the Feast of Trumpets. And those who are alive, it's uh, dead and Messiah will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up with them. And this incredible thing going to the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Messiah, and then he's going to return. And I wouldn't be surprised, and I can't prove this, but I'm going to end this here. But this is just a weird donkey thought. I wouldn't be surprised that from the selection of the bride of Messiah, which I believe arrives with the groom, in the great fulfillment of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, that even the spiritual glorified state of those who overcame from all the tribes will march out or will arrive with Messiah as the Ark of the Covenant, as the actual thing is coming for atonement, that actually this is the order they will be in. I can't prove that, but the more I look at Scripture and the more I understand how literal is our Elohim, I wouldn't put it this way, be surprised if we see the order of taking the promised land be the spiritual host or the order of the actual fulfillment of the arrival of Messiah with his people from the house of Israel. Does that make sense? Can't prove it, but I believe that that taking of the promised land, what was laid in the wilderness, what was in going to the promised land and what will be at the actual fulfillment of atonement, their arrival will actually be in that way. And I wouldn't be surprised to see those who had the covenant on their heart from Zebulun, Ishakar, and Yehuda to actually be right there as the first in line, right behind Messiah at this great event. But again, I can't prove it. But this is just where the things that make my spirit think and, uh, and have a little bit of joy, and I just wanted to share that with all of you. So let's finish up there, and uh, we can have a bit, a bit of Q&A and things like that. Um, go and have a coffee. Go to the restroom, uh, do what you got to do, and uh, we'll be back here in a few minutes.